Hello everyone. Today we're going to be covering chapter 13, anesthesia and physiological monitoring from your Fuller Surgical Technology Principles and Practices textbook. The learning objectives of this course are to explain terms used to describe important anesthesia concepts, identify anesthesia personnel, describe the components of an anesthesia evaluation, discuss the anesthesia selection process, explain the preparation of the patient for anesthesia, and describe the components of physiological monitoring. So anesthesia means without sensation. So the goal of surgical anesthesia is, is to allow the patient to tolerate surgery and maintain the body in a balanced physiological state, which is called um, homeostasis. When we are looking at various important concepts, um, we're going to look at sensation. Sensation is the awareness of stimuli. Analgesia is a loss of pain sensation. Consciousness is a state of awareness in which a person is able to sense the environment and respond to it. Sedation is a state of consciousness described along with continuum. So at the end, a person is fully aware of their surroundings and able to respond to stimuli. Central nervous system decompression refers to a diminished mental, sensory, and physical capacity. Unconsciousness is a severe depression of the CNS resulting in the inability to respond to external stimuli. So deep unconsciousness, such as that achieved during general anesthesia, results in the absence of any kind of protective mechanism, such as swallowing, coughing, blinking, and shivering. Coma is the deepest state of unconsciousness in which most brain activity ceases. And amnesia is a loss of smell, I'm sorry, the loss of recall, memory of events, um, so drugs that produce amnesia are used during the process of anesthesia. When we are looking at various anesthesia personnel, you have the anesthesia care provider. Um, they administer the anesthetic agents, perform physiological monitoring, and respond to an um, anesthetic and surgical emergencies. Then you have the anesthesiologist, um, the anesthesiologist is a medical doctor with specialized training in anesthesia. You have the certified registered nurse anesthetist. The certified registered nurse anesthetist is licensed to deliver anesthesia after achieving a master's of science degree in nursing and then obtaining certification in anesthesia. And then there are various specialty areas in the field of anesthesia um, that that care for basically chronic pain management, um, clinical anesthetic specialist, you have obstetrical, um, cardiac, pediatric, and, and um, basically ambulatory anesthesia specialist. So the role of the ACP is to provide an adequate level of anesthesia while assessing and managing the patient's physiological responses to surgery. So basically they maintain homeostasis, they monitor level of consciousness, they of course control pain management, 
They're the ones administering and monitoring medications. They're the ones maintaining the airway and then monitoring patient response. The role of the anesthesia tech is to maintain any type of anesthesia equipment. You need to be able to maintain that. Um, preparation of drugs and providing non-medical support. When they are looking at a preoperative evaluation of the patient, um, before surgery, the anesthesiologist and any other qualified personnel will meet with the patient. They're going to evaluate their whole physical status. Um, they're going to take their vital signs, their baseline vital signs, their body mass index, um, if there are any airway risks. And then what they look at is they take into account the American Society of Anesthesiologists status. So on page 271 in box 13-1, you'll see the various statuses. Um, ASA-1 is a patient is normal and healthy. ASA-2 is a patient has mild systemic disease. So there are various things that they're gonna look at when they're looking at these patients um, to monitor and see how they should be treated. The preoperative evaluation also includes any comorbidity and anesthesia uh, classifications, any type of current medications and allergies, any type of anesthesia history, if they've ever had any type of problems with anesthesia in the past, and any kind of airway and dental status. Do you have um, any kind of dental implants? Are there any kind of bridges? They're going to look at all of that. It's also going to include a musculoskeletal assessment. So impaired mobility or skeletal injuries and other structural problems could result in restricted range of motion. So they need to make sure they understand that. Mental and neurological status. Um, what is the patient's mental and neurological status? That includes cognition, speech, gait, any motor and sensory functions. And then just a, a overall social assessment. So the patient's emotional and social well-being. You know, how is the patient going to interact and feel under anesthesia? Then, of course, they're going to look at any preoperative investigations. So they're going to find out any diagnostic, test, diagnostic testing um, just to determine the patient's risk level. And they're going to go back and look at that for decades to see what the risk level was overall. When we are looking at anesthesia selection, when the anesthesiologist is determining the type of anesthesia that he's going to use, um, he's going to look at the patient evaluation and then, the, then he'll make a decision on the appropriate type and method of anesthesia. So of course, they're gonna look at the patient's ASA classification, their current physical history, if they have any kind of metabolic disease, um, psychological status, the type of surgery that the patient is having, the length of the procedure, and the history if there's been any type of adverse reaction to anesthetics or any type of drug allergies. Next, we're going to look at admission or preoperative checklist. One of the first things they're going to look at is, was the patient education completed? Was the patient, does the patient have a clear understanding of the type of anesthetics that are going to be used? and what the risks and outcomes are. Um, identification has been verified. Are we working on the correct patient? Correct procedure, site and site verified. 
They want to make sure that the patient, the medical records, um, the surgical schedule, and then the consent form all are in agreement on the type of procedure, the location, the surgeon marking. Um, these are all matched with all the other information that's available. And then are all the consents signed and verified? And if the patient has any type of resuscitation orders, um, like if they have a DNR, do not resuscitate, are these all these resuscitation orders verified and reviewed and in place? We're also going to look if there's any type of allergies. Has a patient ever had any type of allergic reaction that the anesthesiologist needs to be aware of? Any preoperative medications need to be documented if they were given anything preoperatively, that needs to be documented. Any type of prosthesis need to be removed. Um, that would include contact lenses, um, like I said, you know, false teeth, any type of bridges. Um, jewelry needs to be removed. And then medical records need to accompany the patient to the operating room. When we are looking at preoperative medications, many times those are administered as required. That could be either at home in the patient ward or in the perioperative setting. So preoperative medications help with, um, they help decrease anxiety. They provide smooth induction. They reduce gastric acids and they reduce general anesthetics. Um, as far as preoperative fasting, preoperative fasting is going to prevent aspiration. They are going to look at the patient, they're going to let them know that after a certain time, they're not allowed to eat anything, drink anything, um, because if they eat or drink anything, that could cause aspiration, which will actually, um, could possibly go into the lungs and cause pneumonia. So physiological monitoring during surgery, what the anesthesiologist is going to be looking at is he's going to be looking at various things when he's monitoring the patient. He's going to be doing an assessment of all the patient's vital uh, metabolic functions. So whether it's uh, they're under regional, general, or sedative anesthesia, they all require physiological monitoring. So they're gonna look at oxygenation. They're going to look at ventilation. They're gonna review cardiac function, the patient's body temperature, neuromuscular response, and fluid and electrolyte balance. So when they are looking at ventilation, oxygenation, and perfusion, um, when they're looking at pulmonary ventilation, it's a total mechanism for drawing air into the lungs. So they're going to observe and make sure that the patient has the normal rise and fall of the chest. Um, with the observation, they're going to make sure that there is adequate oxygenation that's getting to the patient. And with carpon, uh, carpnography, the partial pressure of the expired carbon dioxide, which is produced by the cells and expired during ventilation, that's going to be measured and then the value is going to be displays, displayed as a waveform on the monitor. Um, SARA is a process that measures blood and anesthesia gases. And with that, they're going to, the anesthesiologist is going to keep all of these things He's going to continually, continually be monitoring the patient throughout surgery. And then of course, they're gonna look at arterial blood gases. They will have a pox oximeter on the patient. They will put that on the, a digit of the patient. 
So that way they can get a healthy reading and make sure that the individual should show a reading of 95% or higher saturation when they're looking at oxygenation. So more components of physiological monitoring, they're going to look at fluid and electrolyte balance. So intravascular volume and pressure, IV infusion pump, they're going to have blood loss calculations. So as a surgical technologist, um, this is how we discuss when you're using your lap sponges, um, you're using irrigation, saline irrigation, you have to track all this because this all ties into the blood loss. Circulatory function and perfusion. So they're gonna be using um, an electrocardiography, arterial blood pressure, any kind of transesophageal monitoring, intravascular monitoring, and then pulmonary artery catheter. So basically with the monitoring um, process, some of the things that they're going to be re looking at closely are the renal function, function. So kidney function can be grossly measured by observing renal output during surgery. So they'll be using, um, when they do like most specific tests, such as a BUN, the blood urea and nitrogen test, those are used to measure substances in the blood that are not effectively filtered by the kidneys. Body temperature, Normal body temperature is 97 degrees to 99.5. So the body can tolerate environmental temperatures outside this range, but only with protection. And then of course, maintaining normal thermia. So the patient's normal temperature is maintained using medical devices that provide convectional heat. And the most common thing used is a bear hugger. Um, and you will see a bear hugger is a blanket that they'll be using in surgery to keep the patient warm. Hypothermia and levels of consciousness, when we are looking at that, hypothermia is used to help treat malignant hypothermia. A neurological response, that's where relaxation is achieved through neuromuscular blocking agents. And then levels of consciousness, that decreases the possibility of intraoperative awareness. So the learning objectives of lesson 13.2 are describe basic anesthesia equipment and its use, describe the concept of airway management, define general anesthesia and describe induction, maintenance and emergence, discuss the difference between disassociative anesthesia and conscious sedation. Explain how regional anesthesia is used and the, and the types that are available. Define common types of regional anesthesia. Define the role of the surgical technologist during the use of regional anesthesia and list common anesthesia emergencies. So general anesthesia is basically the re, um, reversible loss of consciousness. So when this is accompanied by the absence of pain, sensory perception, cognition, memory, and some autonomic reflexes. There's balanced anesthesia equipment. Um, when we're looking at balanced anesthesia equipment, we're looking at the anesthesia workstation. Um, that's a complex biotechnical device used in patient monitoring. 
It assesses a patient's respiratory function and administers the inhalation anesthetics. Then you have the scavenging system for waste gases. You have various medical gas cylinders, oxygen delivery systems, your anesthesia face mask, and then your airways. So if you look at page 278, 279, you can see um, all of the balanced anesthesia equipment in the workstation. When we're looking at types of airway management, um, because of course airway management is a primary concern during general anesthesia or in an emergency. So an endotracheal tube or an ET tube, that's an invasive airway that extends from the mouth to the trachea. It's inserted orally and less commonly through the nose. Um, a laryngeal mask or an LMA is inserted without the aid of a laryngoscope and fits snugly over the larynx. And the LMA is used in patients with difficult airway conditions. Then you have the oral pharyngeal airway or the OPA. That's inserted over the tongue to prevent the tongue or epiglottis from falling back against the pharynx. The nasopharyngeal airway provides a passage between the nostril and the nasopharynx. So these various pictures, you can see these are endo, various endotracheal tubes. You can see how um, this balloon, once they insert it, they blow up this balloon, fill it with air. Then of course you have the laryngeal masks, um, and you can see these LMAs right here, all of these. You have the connector, the tube, and you can see exactly how that's inserted right there by the trachea. So when we are looking at oxygen, oxygen delivery, you have non-inclusive masks, and then you have nasal cannula. So depending on what the anesthesiologist decides to use, he will either use a non-exclusive, non-occlusive mask, or he will just use a simple nasal cannula. That's up to the anesthesiologist. So as you can see, here's um, it, this gives you an idea of exactly how they're going to use it. So there's the nasal cannulas, and then here is the mask. Depending on what the surgeon decides to use is what will be used in the OR. So when we are looking at intubation, intubation is a routine procedure during a, uh, general anesthesia or during respiratory or cardiac arrest. During general anesthesia, the patient is intubated immediately after induction. And the type of laryngoscope used depends on the patient's age and the airway anatomy. Now patients with difficult airways, that's one in which the usual methods of providing ventilation are extremely difficult. Related events include hypoxia, which can lead to brain death. Um, evaluation of, by the anesthesiologist care provider is evaluated prior to surgery. Um, it's related to the patient's neck anatomy. So when we are looking at modern techniques, we have the bimanual laryngoscopy or optimal external laryngeal manipulation. There's also backward, upward right pressure. 
And then backward pressure or the Selleck maneuver. There are various phases of general anesthesia. The first stage is pre-induction. That's a process of general anesthesia that starts when all perioperative team members are present and preparations to start surgery have been completed. The patient is brought into the room. We're getting them ready for surgery. That's pre-induction. Induction is where the patient passes through the stages from consciousness to a deep surgical anesthesia. Maintenance is where anesthesia maintenance, that begins when the patient's airway is secured and inhalation drugs can be administered. Emergence, when, the, when we're looking at emergence, what they are going to be looking at is that's a termination of anesthesia and the process of regaining consciousness is called emergence, so they are coming out, they're emerging from anesthesia. Recovery, when, when stable, the patient is transferred to a stretcher and transport, transported to post-anesthesia care unit or PACU. And during transportation, oxygen may be administered from a portable tank. And then the patient's going to be evaluated and pack you to ensure that they're recovering correctly from anesthesia. So disassociated anesthesia and conscious sedation. With disassociated anesthesia, ketamine blocks neurotransmission and association pathways. At this time, the patient's eyes remain open and the person appears to be awake, but he or she is unaware of the environment. There is also conscious sedation. Conscious sedation is used for short diagnostic or minor surgical procedures that do not require deep anesthesia. So there's minimal sedation, moderate sedation, and then deep sedation, depending on what they need for that surgery. Regional anesthesia, um, it could be either topical, local infiltration, a nerve block, a spinal, caudal, or an epidural, depending on what they're doing, the location of surgery, and what they're trying to see. A lot of times, let's say, for instance, um, in labor and delivery, you are going to see um, a woman have like an epidural when she's in labor and she's going to deliver for various reasons. Um, if they're doing a C-section, they might also use an epidural or a spinal. If there is some kind of a removal of let's say um, a wart or something. They may just do topical or local. So these are all things that you have to be aware of in various types of um, administration of regional anesthesia that's used in the operating room. If you go to page 287 um, all the way through 288, you'll see the various types of regional anesthesia that's used. Of course, then we look at drug dosage. Um, when we are looking at regional anesthesia, there's MAC, so monitoring. They are going to monitor the patient while they are under a MAC. So at this time, they're going to make sure that all of the patient's um, vital signs, they're normal. They're going to be monitoring them the whole time. Um, types of regional anesthesia, they have topical anesthesia and then local infiltration again. So let's discuss the role of the surgical technologist and what role we play 
in helping the anesthesiologist when they're looking at administering to the patient. The first thing we have to do is we have to verify supplies. So we have to verify that they have everything they need, depending on where you're at. Um, the facility may be, you may be the one that actually changes out the tubing, um, clears out the anesthesia, you know, clears around the anesthesia area after, of course, he has gotten rid of his drugs. Um, we receive and verify any type of anesthetic drug on our back table that's to be used. Let's say the surgeon's going to administer local after the procedure onto the incision, into the incision area to help with pain. That's something that we would receive onto our back table. So of course we would label, um, verify, you know, the type of medication, the expiration date, all of that information. And then of course we label everything appropriately. Um, we provide at least two 25, either 26 or 30 gauge needles. Then we have two 10 or 25 milliliter syringes, depending on what the surgeon wants and um, gauze sponges. So when we're talking gauze sponges, of course, if we are looking at in the process of surgery, we're going to be looking at um, using our, our, um, our Raytex sponges. So the one thing you wanna do is you wanna fill one syringe and have one available. The one that you feel, of course, you are going to have labeled. You're going to separate those syringes and then you are going to note the amount used. So you're going to have to track how much anesthetic drug you used. So you, the anesthesiologist is going to ask you at the end of surgery, along with the surgeon, how much local was used. So you're going to have to verify that and that's part of your job is tracking that. Um, when we are looking at a nerve block, there are specific areas of the body. So you have intravenous or a beer block. When we are looking at beer blocks, what we have to look at is the surgical technologist during a beer block. We have to ensure that um, the circulating surgical technologist assists with the beer block by having the necessary supplies and equipment prepared. Um, the surgeon or the surgical technologist assist is required. And we have to make sure that by hospital policy, we regown and re-glove re after the beer block and before surgery begins. Um, in spinal anesthesia, you have the patient prep. Um, of course, the patient is going to be prepped. Then of course, we have the procedure where they're actually instilling that anesthesia into the spine. Um, the procedure, of course, for the surgical technologist, um, we're going to look at, we assist in the procedure by preparing the spinal tray and the correct size of spinal needles. We prepare the prep solution and then we drape as needed. The risks of spinal anesthesia, um, it, there could be hypotension, post-spinal headache, and then just total spinal anesthesia. So this, of course, is a picture you can see with spinal anesthesia. You can see how they're going in with the spinal needle and where exactly into the subarachnoid space, and they're injecting that. So that's something that the anesthesiologist will be doing. An epidural or a caudal block, that's where an anesthetic agent is injected into the epidural space that surrounds the dural sac. Um, the patient's skin is prepped for a spinal anesthesia. And the thoracic, lumbar, or caudal puncture site is used depending on the tar target site of the anesthesia. So when we're looking at doing this, um, mostly with, like I was saying, 
Um, you're going to see a lot of epidurals, either that be for pain management, you'll see it for in labor and delivery a, a lot. Um, our role is the same as it would be for spinal anesthesia. So with anesthesia emergencies, um, there may be drug toxicity or allergic reaction. There could be central nervous system toxicity, cardiovascular toxicity. If there's any type of allergic reaction where the patient has developed some kind of reaction to the anesthetic, um, of course, there could be cardiopulmonary arrest. So in the, in the point of cardiopulmonary arrest, what we have to do as surgical technologists is if we're in the middle of surgery and the patient um, goes into cardiac arrest, our job as surgical technologists is to pu push back our back table, push back our mail stand, and ensure that all of our area stays sterile so they will call a code blue, the code blue team will come in, they will deal with the patient, but we have to be prepared as surgical technologists to continue on with the surgery, whatever the outcome may be. Um, and then of course, airway emergency, if there's the patient's having a problem where um, there's an unconscious patient who cannot be intubated, those are things that we have to be prepared for. Um, laryngospasms, the spasms of the larynx that are usually associated with airway secretions or simulation of the laryngeal nerve. So those are also items that can happen. And then anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis is a true allergic reaction to a substance or drug. Um, you have to remember the patient can go into anaphylactic shock. So we have to be really careful of that. Sign and signs and symptoms include rash, abnormal lung sounds detected during um, oscillations, wheezing and difficulty breathing. And the event of anaphylaxis, um, the anesthesiologist, nurse, or surgeon immediately administers multiple doses of epinephrine. And once again, as surgical technologists, we have to ensure that even if that situation is going on, we have to protect our sterile field. Um, there are various types of shock that we are going to look at. Um, there is circulatory shock, cardiogenic shock, anaphylactic shock, neurogenic, and then septic shock. So depending on the type of shock that the patient is, there's going to be um, treatment for shock is targeted at restoring circulatory function, electrolyte balance, and then just oxygenation of the tissues. So the immediate emergency response is related to the cause. So then you have malignant hypothermia. That's a rare physiological response to all volatile anesthetic agents. Um, at this time, what we're going to look at is the patient exhibits an extremely high core temperature, tachycardia, tachyapnea, and increased muscle rigidity. So the one thing you have to know as a surgical technologist is you have to be aware to watch for these symptoms because a lot of times during surgery, you're going to notice this as it's going on, ongoing. So the malignant hypothermia symptoms occur during surgery. The anesthesiologist alerts the team immediately. Treatment requires immediate cessation of anesthesia and drug therapy to treat the adverse metabolic symptoms. 
The scrub remains sterile to help protect the surgical incision. And when immediate body cooling is required, the surgeon and the anesthesiologist may initiate cold irrigation in open body cavities, ice packs, and cold IV solution. The scrub receives sterile equipment, ice, and fluid to assist in lowering the body temperature. And therapy is continued in the, until the patient is stabilized. So the surgical wound is closed quickly when surgery must be halted, and the patient is transported to the ICU for further treatment and observation. Hemorrhaging, if there's any type of severe hemorrhaging during surgery, um, blood volume is restored by giving any type of blood substitutes, blood components, or um, autogeous auto blood. So we have to make sure that the patient um, if there's a case where we feel there's going to be a lot of bleeding, usually if the patient does not believe in getting someone else's blood, then they will donate their own. Then, of course, there's hemolytic reactions. Um, that's a rupture of red blood cells, and it's associated with the ABO factor, incompatibility during blood transfusion. This is one thing that um, when a patient is having surgery, they are, they are expecting blood loss. They will have them come in first and be tested, Christ taught, tight, crossed, and matched to make sure that they have the correct blood on hand. Um, deep vein thrombosis, that's an embolus in any moving particle within the vascular system. So risk, risk factors for emboli include trauma, orthopedic fracture, burns, surgical procedures involving flexion and rotation of the hip, and any time of use of pneumatic tourniquet. Okay, so we have covered um, anesthesia and the physiological monitoring in our textbook. My suggestion would be for you to review the questions, um, understand the key concepts, and take a look at the case study so you'll have a better understanding of what your reaction should be during any, type, any um, of these types of situations. Thank you very much.